Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar.com. Our guest this week is James Montier. James is a member of the asset allocation team at Grantham Mayo Van Otterloo & Co. Before joining GMO in 2009, James was co-head of global strategy at SoGen. A prolific and incisive writer, James has authored several books, including Behavioral Investing, A Practitioner's Guide to Applying Behavioral Finance, Value Investing, Tools and Techniques for Intelligent Investment, and The Little Book of Behavioral Investing. He's also a regular contributor to GMO's library of white papers and research studies on topics ranging from productivity, strategic asset allocation, contrarianism, and much more. In addition to his duties at GMO, James is also a visiting fellow at the University of Durham and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. We're very pleased to welcome him to The Long View today. James, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, James. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So maybe to get started and, and help some of our users place you in a professional context, can you talk a bit about your role at GMO? Specifically, what are your outputs apart from what you write and and maybe how your contributions to the firm are measured? Sure. So absolutely. Um, I guess I, I found a job that I, I'm just naturally inclined to be good at, which is um, a, a fairly niche field given my limited skill set. But um, it turns out that being a pain in the ass is something I excel at. Um, and really, my, my job is, is like a, a Socratic gadfly to stick my fingers into all the pies that, that people don't want me to, to kind of stick my fingers in and ask questions that people would prefer I probably didn't ask. So my job is really to, to think about the issues surrounding investment, particularly in the context of, of multi-asset investment, um, and where our, our standard forecasting framework could be wrong. So when uh, Ben Inkar hired me almost a decade ago now, he said, having known me for a good few years, that I was an interesting character because on three out of four occasions, uh, we agreed on, on kind of everything. But the, the interesting occasion was the fourth time, uh, given the, that we were both essentially value investors following the edicts of Ben Graham in a multi-asset environment. But that, that divergent view was, was always interesting. And so my role really internally is, is to, to question what we're doing. And I really think of research, which is where I spend almost all of my time these days, as a form of risk management. For me, it's, it's asking those questions, where could we be wrong? What are we missing? How, how sure are we in our core beliefs? Where could they be wrong? What are the consequences of them being wrong from pretty much every angle, right the way through from kind of you know, high-level philosophy right the way through to the, the portfolios themselves? And so, yeah, my, my role is essentially to, to be difficult. And it turns out I'm, I'm quite good at that, as my wife will happily confirm. <laughs> so I think being difficult in a number of firms and with a number of investment decision makers could be seen as professionally threatening, right? They wouldn't take to it very well. So what is it about your situation and circumstances at GMO that makes it different, where it's viewed as a constructive input into the decision-making process? That's, that's an excellent point. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. In a lot of firms, you know, they, they kind of follow the Japanese approach, which is you know, the nail that, that sticks out gets hammered. And I think GMO is, is different in that regard. We have never had a, a house view as such. There is no one setting the, the one house view. We, we've always had divergent opinions amongst our portfolio managers and, and researchers. And I think that that's healthy. It's not healthy if, if you can't agree on anything at all. And so I think the one thing that unites all of us is a core belief in the precepts of a value-based approach. But from there, I think people are, are kind of broadly accepting of, of challenge. And I think in some ways, it's a little bit like academia in the challenge and, and that thirst for more knowledge, uh, greater insight is actually welcomed. And that, that idea of being able to challenge one's colleagues and, and indeed be challenged. Um, is, is something that I think we work very hard on, on making part of the investment process across the firm. So how do you try to foster that sort of culture where people, maybe even junior people, feel comfortable speaking up and asserting a viewpoint that's different from yours or another of the firm's principles? It is incredible 
incredibly hard, and the, the the psychological literature can can not always be terribly helpful. As it usually comes down to the the fact that you have to have mutual respect. But I, I think that that is easily said, much harder to to actually enforce. And I think it it has to be almost organic. It has to come from everybody being willing to accept that they could be wrong. And and I think investing is one of those fields where there is almost constant evidence that we are all wrong on a regular basis. And that, that I think, fosters a, a sense of humility. With um, younger, more junior colleagues, I think the approach is one that the Royal Engineers and the British Army actually adopted, which is um, when they come and try and solve a problem, they start with the most junior person present and ask for his or her solution. The idea being that that, that person is then unencumbered by fear of speaking or, or disagreeing with, with a superior because they have no idea what the superior will say. This is one of the advantages. The other advantage, of course, is the superior generally doesn't have to make that many decisions because most of the problems get solved long before they reach him uh, or her. So I think um, a lot of it is, is how you structure your interaction with your colleagues. And we try and encourage the, the view that, that everybody has insight and there, there is no monopoly on truth here. We, we want to encourage people to, to, to have that debate to make it collegiate conflict. We, we don't want somebody to come in and think they know all the answers because our experience shows that, that none of us do. And it's really about that, that desire to, to grow as, as a group together that I, I think we're trying to, to draw out. But it, it, it's hard to encode that in, in a lot of organizations. And so we spend a lot of time trying to think about formats, think about ways of getting people to interact. So I generally choose to, to communicate via, via writing when I'm, I'm doing internal work. And I, I think that gives a discipline both on me and for my colleagues. It, it's a discipline on me because it forces me to try and have a logical chain of thought that, that somebody who isn't talking to me can actually follow. Uh, and I think there is a, a clarity and uh, almost a therapeutic benefit to, to writing one's ideas down. The other advantage of it from my colleague's point of view is they can review that uh, output at their leisure and then respond. And I, I think that is very much the way that, that it, it used to work when I was an academic and, and I, I've seen prosper in, in, in academic circles is that kind of interaction and, and iteration uh, between individuals, but with a, a kind of somebody has to start the ball rolling, if you will. Uh, and having something written down is, is a good it, it provides, if nothing else, a straw man for, for others to, to kind of bat against. What's a recent example of when there's been a healthy debate over a topic? Uh, so I think probably uh, Jeremy and I, actually, Jeremy Grantham and I have been debating um, for, for a while. Uh, the, the possibility of an alteration in the speed of mean reversion, as I'm sure you're aware and many of your listeners will know, mean reversion is, is a topic that we hold very dear to our hearts. And in essence, when we're building our, our framework for forecasting, uh, what we're really saying is that over the next seven years, we have no idea what's going to happen. And therefore, generally, we expect things to head back towards normal. There's a general kind of rule, as a base case, if you like. Um, and Jeremy and I have spent some time debating that. And, and Jeremy has, has been arguing for a slower, more protracted, drawn out mean reversion. Um, I, I think he called it with a, with a whimper, not a bang. And uh, it, it, it was a, an interesting hypothesis, and it was one that, that, that piqued my interest, and, and I wanted to, to kind of take the other side of that and, and make the case that perhaps nothing had changed that much, that actually the U.S. equity market was just obscenely expensive and that one shouldn't necessarily expect a protracted period of mean reversion. That culminated actually in, in uh, Ben, Jeremy, myself, and, and our colleagues sitting down and we actually now essentially run, to all intents and purposes, two different versions of the forecasts, uh, one which embody mean reversion as, as we always have over the course of seven years, and one that essentially says things will probably go back to normal, just not the old normal, and it will probably be a, a slower mean reversion. And when we're actually building portfolios, we take both of those forecasts as, as inputs into our expected return. And I, I think that was a good example of the kind of interaction and iteration and a robust discussion that, that we kind of like to think that we do reasonably well. 
And so is that expressing itself in your ASA-class forecast? You mentioned there's two different versions. Uh, so in the public ASA-class forecast, uh, the ones we actually publish are based on seven-year forecasts reverting to normal. But there is another set that, that we use and, and occasionally show at, at various conferences where those forecasts are, um, are higher because there's slower mean reversion. Uh, so they're not actually reflected in the, the sort of ones that we put up on the website, but they are ones that both Ben and I have written about and, and all of our colleagues have used in our meetings with clients. That's interesting. And if you had to break down, I know that there's some very important inputs, especially in the equity forecast. Um, if you had to break down the differences between old and new, what would be the most salient differences? I think you mentioned the fact that there's maybe a more gradual assumption of mean reversion in this newer version of the asset class forecast. But from an assumption standpoint, like what drives that? Right. So uh, I think it's really about, uh, you can think of it in lots of different ways, because obviously the components are, are many and varied when we're building those forecasts. But um, you could think about it as saying, look, interest rates are going to stay lower for longer than people imagined. Therefore, equities are worth more than people had imagined, and therefore the terminal PE is actually higher than one would have otherwise assumed. So you can kind of build a chain of logic that way around. I know Ben Inka is, is a, a fan of that particular framing. Jeremy, I think, prefers to say, actually, mean reversion still happens, but it just takes a lot longer. So you have a, a much smoother path, and Jeremy has highlighted in some of his thoughts things like uh, corporate concentration as potentially relevant for, for slowing the, the path of mean reversion. So I think you can build lots of, of different kind of economic scenarios, if you like, that give you routes that end up in the same place, almost irrespective of the particular scenario that, that one particular individual is considering. So is the slower mean reversion view the um, one that calls for somewhat higher expected seven-year returns from the major asset classes? Is that finding itself into any of the investment strategies that you um, put together, the multi-asset investment strategies? Absolutely. Yes, it does. And so it, it, when, we're, when we're actually building the portfolios, we're taking a blend of these two different forecasts, the standard seven-year mean reversion and then the slower mean reversion-based forecast, and uh, we have weights on them. And at the moment, Ben Inker is, is the man who decides the weights um, as he's responsible for the overall asset allocation, and uh, he puts a, a kind of two-thirds weight on the old normal, the reversion over seven years, and therefore a one-third weight on the, the kind of alternative framework. And then we take those expected returns and we use that combined return to actually build the portfolio. And that's really important to us because one of the, the things that uh, I have held very dear to my heart is the concept of, of a robust portfolio. And, and to me, too many people in finance spend all of their time worrying about the optimal portfolio. The optimal portfolio, I think, would be a very nice idea, but it, it really requires us to be either incredibly sure in our views, which I think is, is foolish, or to, to be absolutely right, which I think is just luck. So, you know, ex post, I can always tell you what was the best performing asset and why you should have, of course, had 100% of your capital in it. Uh, but it's not a terribly helpful uh, ex ante before the fact kind of, of framing. And so I think when you're building a portfolio, really what you want to do is build a portfolio that can withstand as many different outcomes as is possible. What that means, of course, is you are not going to have the portfolio that does best in whatever outcome actually transpires. And that can be a very hard thing for investors to, to kind of accept because they have their views and they want to, to express those views. And my own point of perspective on this is to say, well, yeah, that's great. If you're right, you're, you're going to shoot the lights out. But what's the probability on you being right? What's the probability on you being wrong? And if you're wrong, what happens? And so we're using those blended forecasts to try and make ourselves robust, to make our, our portfolios at least um, – survive lots of different outcomes. And by doing that multiple times over the long term, we think that's how you out-compound for the longer term. 
So for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the strategies that you run, maybe we'll focus on your least constrained, right? Um, Can you describe, given this backdrop, what they would see, what's most striking in those portfolios? I would imagine, given that you're a bit more constructive towards emerging markets and also like the optionality of cash, that those would be very prominent features of a strategy like that that you're running for clients. Is that correct? And can you flesh that out a little bit? Absolutely right. So I I think when you look at our unconstrained portfolios, the hallmark is that we own essentially zero U.S. equities. And that's a real shock to to an awful lot of investors because they're like, how how can you be so anti-U.S. equities? And our answer is, well, they look like the most expensive equities in the world. And it, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in, in fast mean reversion, no mean reversion, either way, they, they still come out as, as one of the least attractive equities out there. And, and so they, they just don't earn a place in our portfolios. In contrast, we have nearly a quarter of the portfolios, 25%, in emerging markets. And all of that emerging market equity exposure is all targeted at emerging market value stocks. So I, I think those kinds of perspectives really kind of make our portfolios look very different. Uh, zero US, a large weighting in emerging, a very large weight in alternatives. And it's not really that we love alternatives for their own sake. We have nearly 32% of the portfolio in, in alternatives. Um, but it is the fact that we think that alternatives offer a cash plus like return, particularly in the, the kind of alternatives that, that we are, are running. So we think of those as, as trying to do better than cash uh, in a world where cash is, is not giving you that much return, as, as we're all painfully aware. Um, that represents a lot of the dry powder-ish elements trying to at least generate some return and hopefully alimerate some of the drag that, that tends to come from holding just cash in its normal form in this low interest rate environment. So our portfolios look kind of, of, of a little freakish, I would suggest, to, to most people. Um, and generally, they have done over time. When we first launched this approach, the, the unconstrained benchmark-free fund, this was in the very late 1990s. So the, the TMT bubble, uh, technology bubble, was in full swing. And again, back then, we held zero U.S. equities. We had uh, a third of the portfolio in international stocks, a third of the portfolio in the tips and a third of the portfolio in uh, emerging markets, split between emerging market debt and emerging market equity. So again, it looked a very strange portfolio, but we thought it was the the best portfolio that was on offer. Contrast that with something like the portfolios it looked in 2007 when the forecasts were pretty negative, in fact, almost universally negative across all of the the equity markets. You had this um, very bizarre situation where it appeared investors were, were paying for the pleasure of taking on risk. The only equities that the fund held were quality equities. And even then, I think the, the lowest weight got down to about 22%. And pretty much everything else was in some form of dry powder, cash, bonds, alternatives. And so the portfolio has, over time, looked very different. And, and I think we have Perhaps inadvertently followed uh, Sir John Templeton's advice, which is if you want different results from other people, you have to be prepared to look different from other people. And I think that's something that we think is important. And we've talked a lot over the years uh, about career risk and the fact that most investors simply do not want to take on career risk. And I think this is one advantage for an individual investor over an institutional investor. An individual investor should not have career risk. Right? They're not going to get fired for running their portfolio. But uh, an institutional investor is, is, I think, almost always got one eye over their shoulder thinking, God, if I do something daft and I don't own U.S. equities and they have another absolutely stellar year, uh, I'm going to get the chop. And, and that's a terrifying prospect. And I, I think we have been prepared to take on more career risk than, than, than most other investors over the course of time. And we don't do it to be bloody-minded. We don't do it to be different for its own sake. We do it because we think it is the right thing to do from a long-term return-generating perspective. 
In terms of the alternative allocation, fairly high allocation, I would guess, relative to other firms that do multi-asset strategies. So let's talk about how you approach that asset class, which type of alternative assets, and also how you can get past the cost headwind that can sometimes accompany alternative assets. Yeah, I think that that last point is, is, a, is a very, very important one. But I, I think the the label, actually, although I used alternatives, is, is not terribly helpful in, in lots of regards because I don't generally think of alternatives as uh, anything other than alternative ways of owning standard risk. And I think some people think of alternatives as uh, sort of magic beans or unicorns or you know, uncorrelated sources of return. Right. Um, those are, are very rare. It's not to say they don't exist. There, there are a handful of funds and, and investors out there who, who certainly have demonstrated they do. But I think it's rare, um, extremely rare. And so rather than think about that perspective on, on alternatives, the way I think about it is saying, right, they are just different ways of owning standard risk. And, and let's think about what those standard risks are. So from a portfolio point of view, what are those the, the deep risks that investors should really concern themselves with? And, and really, there, there are two and a half, and I'll try and explain them. The, the first is, is kind of growth risk or depression risk. You know, if you're underwriting equities or equity-like risk, then you are essentially underwriting some form of, of growth risk. You know, what is the circumstance under which all equities simultaneously lose money on a, on a kind of fundamental basis as opposed to a price drop in the market, it is when you have uh, some form of economic depression and, and corporate profits across the board collapse. And so you, you know if you're exposed to equities, you're underwriting growth risk. In contrast, if you're in the fixed income space, what is the, the clear and present danger at any point in time? Well, it's inflation beyond the amount that is priced into the asset. So inflation risk is the second of those kind of huge almost undiversifiable sources of deep risk that an investor is taking on. The half a risk is liquidity. And liquidity can't be a full risk because it clearly is not available to everybody at every point in time, something that Maynard Keynes pointed out a long time ago. You know, He said we had a kind of fetish with the concept of liquidity, but in aggregate, it, it just couldn't exist. Of course, he was right. For every buyer, there must be a seller. Um, and so... I think it's a half risk because if you are an active investor, then you do have to worry a little bit about liquidity. And if you are trying to rotate the assets in a portfolio, then liquidity clearly matters. So it's, it's, a, it's a risk that you need to be cognizant of. So let's go from those kind of two and a half risks back to alternatives. So let's take um, merger arbitrage. Merger arbitrage is a good example. That, that's a strategy that we run within the, the alternatives the sleeve of the portfolios. Uh, merger arbitrage, I think, is an interesting one because it is equity-like risk. You know, when will all merger arbitrage deals fail? Well, it is probably when you have a depression because nobody's going to want to be doing merger arbitrage then. Mergers and acquisition under those kind of scenarios. So it's equity-like risk, pure and simple. But it has some very different payoff characteristics. Uh, the duration of an equity is anywhere between 25 and, and 55 years, depending on how you measure it. For merger arbitrage, the average duration is somewhere between six and, and maybe 12 months. So it's a much shorter duration form of equity ownership. So you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking this is somehow an uncorrelated source of return, but it is something that is a, a different way of owning equity-like risk. Put selling would be another great example, right? Put selling, we're talking about selling, let's say, one month at the money puts at an index level. That has a very different payoff profile from equity-like returns. But it's still equity-like risk. You know, when the market absolutely crashes, that's the time when put selling is going to hurt you. So you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking it isn't equity-like risk. But the payoff profile is quite different. The returns to put selling are pretty invariant to the starting valuation in a way that isn't true of equities. And the reason is, of course, the time horizon, again, is very different. If you're selling one month at the money puts, half of your return should come through effectively the delta, if you like, the, the equity market return, and half of it will come through the variance risk premium or the, or the insurance, because you're providing an insurance service. You are effectively receiving an income. You're clipping a coupon, if you like. 
Um, and therefore, when you do that every month, what that means is you, you end up with a very different payoff profile. So we can think of these as, as equity-like risk, pure and simple. We know they are equity-like things, but the way they, they deliver returns to investors is not the same as owning long-only standard equities. And I think as long as one understands the nature of the risks that you're taking, then you can use these alternative ways of owning standard risk to your advantage, particularly in a world where, frankly, the opportunity set is, is not that great. Your equity return forecasts are not um, very attractive by and large, with the exception of emerging markets. Everywhere else is, is kind of there. Um, fixed income is, is not providing its historic safe haven. Hey, look, you can sit and own cash or bonds and, and be paid well. You can't today, which, to be honest, you could even in 2007. Uh, and you certainly could in, in periods like 1999. And so today, I think the rationale for owning alternatives is greater than it has been historically. But I think one does have to be careful about how that's implemented. And cost is a huge impact on that. Because if you're trying to generate cash plus-like returns, um, it doesn't take a huge amount of fees to completely eliminate that cash plus bit, and suddenly you end up with cash minus, which is a dreadful idea. And so you do have to be really laser-focused on, on making sure you are not overpaying for the privilege of these, these alternatives. And really thinking about them as alternative ways of owning standard risk, I think, helps to remind you that Hey, I'm taking on standard risk. I should be paid in, in a way that's appropriate. And that pay has to, of course, be after I've, I've dealt with the costs that are associated with whatever strategy I'm trying to follow. I'd like to go back to forecasting in a minute. But before we do so, I, I'm just curious how you size positions like those. I think you mentioned a couple of alternative strategies, merger, ARB, and put selling. And so I, I would imagine you have a framework that dictates how it is you would determine how big a part of the portfolio that's going to be. And so can you take us through that and also maybe talk for a minute about sort of the notion of decay, whether some of these strategies are potentially arbable, so to speak, and mm-hmm. and and at what point that enters into your thinking about the opportunity that that sort of strategy yeah. presents to you and to your clients? Sure. So I think although we have uh, nearly yeah, 32% of the portfolio in, in these alternative strategies, each individual one is actually sized reasonably small. So uh, our biggest is a 7.5% position in, in one particular strategy, which is our, our systematic global macro, which is a global tactical asset allocation long-short vehicle run by my colleagues out of our Australian office. Everything else has considerably less. Like merger of is, is 5% of the portfolio, put selling 2.5%, et cetera. So we have a fairly wide range of these alternatives available to us, and therefore we size them such that no one of them can be that big because we don't want them to drive the the overall return of the benchmark-free fund. They're really there to provide a cash-plus-like return, and we should size them such that they cannot hurt the overall fund should we get something wrong in any of them. And I think that's that's really important from our point of view, which is why we've got a whole gamut of these things that we actually allocate across. In terms of, of, of decay, I think that's an excellent point. And I think it goes to, at least partially, to, to kind of the two extremes, if you like, within the alternative framework. There are those, those ones I touched on briefly, which are genuine, uncorrelated sources of return. We think of a systematic global macro as, as one of those. In its history, which has been running since the, uh, the early 2000s, uh, it has done an incredible job of generating good long-run returns that are actually, by and large, pretty uncorrelated with other things. So we think of that as, as much closer to the, the alpha end of the spectrum. And things like merger arb and, and put selling at the, the kind of beta replacement end of the spectrum. Now, the, the beta replacement end of the spectrum is much less likely to be armed because you are underwriting fundamental risk, right? And you should be compensated for underwriting that risk. And you can monitor it, things like um, the variance risk premium, the gap between implied and and realized volatility. You can see over time whether that is moving. So you you can monitor the potential threat of decay in a situation like that. Similarly, with something like merger up, 
Uh, you can look at the, the scale of the spreads available to you. And you can say, OK, look, if all of these spreads are really, really tight, it could be that it's been armed. It could just be that people are pricing it wrong. I, I don't know. Either way, I certainly don't want to be engaged in that activity in those kinds of, of scenarios. Um, I think where you have to worry a lot more about decay is in the, the, the kind of alpha end of the spectrum. The closer you get to the pure alpha, if you like, the more vulnerable you are to decay because the more you have a genuinely uncorrelated source of return, the more likely it is other people will, will be trying to capture some part of it. And I know the team who, who run the, the Systematic Global Macro spend an awful lot of time thinking, innovating, making sure that their signals that they use are kind of at the cutting edge. Then they have dropped signals. There have been some things that they used to use they no longer use because they think they have decayed. And so I think if you're, you're in that kind of pure alpha game, if you like, decay is, is a very real threat. At the other end of the spectrum, I think it is a lesser, but, but still not a, a risk that you wish to ignore, but it is generally a lesser problem. Let's back up a little bit and uh, provide some context on how you arrive at the asset class forecasts, maybe starting with U.S. equity. Talk about the key inputs that would factor into the return forecast. So the way, the way we think about forecasting any asset is to start with a really simple question. How do I get paid for owning this asset? That is the, the, the first and most important question that, that one can ask. Once you've begun to answer that, then we can move on. But So for a group of equities, let's take U.S. equities as our example. How do I get paid for owning U.S. equities? Well, there are, in essence, four component parts. The group of equities I own could get more expensive, i.e. Their, their valuations could go up. Uh, that would be a good return for me. It could be uh, that their, their profits go up. That would be a source of return. It could be that they give me some yield, and I will almost certainly get some growth. So those four components are the four elements of your return generation. And the nice thing about that is it's a truism. It's the counting identity. I can always decompose your returns into those component parts. Now, you then need to turn that accounting identity, which is useful, into a framework for forecasting. And to do that, you have to say, okay, over the course of some time period, and we choose to use seven years, how are these variables going to evolve? And so in our baseline forecast, what we say is, from wherever we are today, we are going back towards normal. And so for U.S. equities today, they are expensive relative to what we would think of as normal. Their profits are higher than we would think of as normal. And so both of those elements act as drags on your return. You will, of course, get yield and you will get some growth. But when we build our forecast, we actually find that the, the two return drags, the drag from valuation and the drag from profitability, uh, both returning to normal more than outweigh the, the yield and growth. And you end up with actually a forecast that's like minus 4% real, uh, so after inflation per annum for the next seven years. Now, the nice thing about that, that framework is it, it really does two things. First of all, it provides a starting point for conversation. <laughs> if somebody comes in and says, well, I think U.S. equities are going to generate 8% real per annum for the next seven years, uh, we can say, great, show us how. Tell us, let's, let's have a discussion about which of these components we're disagreeing on. Is it the fact that you think PEs are going to continue to go up? Is it the fact that you think profits are, are going to, to exceed the fairly high levels we've already got to? I have never met anyone making this argument, but in theory they could. Yeah. They believe suddenly the yield is, is going to increase dramatically. I, I think that's the least likely of the cases. Or is it the fact you are uh, having a brilliantly bullish view on growth? But at least it provides a, a starting framework for a conversation. And so I think that, that's a really useful trait of the forecasts. The other uh, useful aspect of those forecasts is they force you to behave in a certain way. And that, that is really powerful, uh, particularly just when you need it. So if we're, let's say, in 2009, late 08, early 09, um, the world is falling apart. You, you can pick up the Wall Street Journal, and every day it, it's kind of, you know, the world is ending, Lehman's is failing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and almost no scenario is held to be too negative. And at that time, our forecasts are, are remarkably bullish because they're saying, well, look, PEs are pretty low, profits are pretty low, so we're reverting those to normal, so we're getting a boost. The opposite of today's situation, we're getting a boost from them. 
plus yield, plus growth. We're getting uh, forecasts for a wide range of equity markets, let's say, which were in the range of, uh, let's say, 8 to 12%, which was incredibly attractive. And so we're sitting there like everybody else, picking up the newspapers and thinking, geez, this isn't fun. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting there and the market's going down, the world is ending. And, but wow, how can we not be investing when we're seeing these kind of prospective returns? And so the forecasts force you to, to want to go out and own assets uh, or uh, at least come up with an incredibly good reason as to why those forecasts are wrong. And I think in general, our view is in those kinds of circumstances, your, your baseline case has to be that the forecasts are right because you know that a lot of the emotion that is picked up from reading the newspapers is the sort of thing you want to be blocking out. And so the forecasts really do act as an anchor to behavior, if you like, a um, kind of behavioral self-defense mechanism, which we think of as, as an incredibly valuable tool when it comes to allocating assets and therefore generating returns in the longer term. With the benefit of hindsight, I think it could be said that you've been too bearish on U.S. equity, which has significantly outperformed your forecast. That would be fair. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe reflecting on that, I guess my first question is when you go through each one of those inputs to the answer to the question, how do I get paid, your earnings multiples assumption, your profit margins assumption, your capital growth assumption, your yield assumption that was off, if you had to key in on one of those, which is the one that was the fly in the ointment? And then what are the implications for the future as you sort of push off and make forecasts for the next seven plus? years, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I, I think Mayor Culpa, Mayor Maxima Culpa, we have no doubt been too bearish on U.S. equities given their, their performance. Um, and when we look at the forecast error uh, and track it down, it really does center in on the valuation. It is the valuation that we got most wrong. The, the growth and yield components have been yeah, within the range of where we thought they would likely be. Profits have been a little bit higher, not massively, although I, I think they have had a, a contributory impact, but it, it's really the valuation where we've been most wrong. And that has led us to lots of discussions. We spent an entire day as a group of investors, we got all the, um, all the investment professionals within the firm together to, to sit down and, and reflect on, on this problem. And, and we had various presentations from all sorts of, of divisions talking about explanations for why the valuations have been so high. You know, why was the world willing to pay a premium for the U.S.? Was it that they had, uh, on average, higher quality businesses that we just hadn't factored in sufficiently? Was it the fact that the interest rates uh, had been so much lower? Was that the explanation? Um, we, we tried and cut and diced from as many different angles as we could as, as we tried to understand it. And, and ultimately, I think, at least from my point of view, we, we ended up with the unsatisfying but honest conclusion, which was we didn't really know that there wasn't a, a compelling case from any of these kinds of perspectives that, that really explained the way the U.S. had been priced. And so that's when Jeremy and I began debating the, the kind of potential causes of, of slower mean reversion. And, and that is still a very much an ongoing research topic and, and an ongoing debate between Jeremy and I. And I, I don't know how we resolve it. Um, I do know that, that one of the upshots of all of that work was the kind of blended forecast between the old world, where everything mean reverted nicely over seven years, and this more modern world where mean reversion is perhaps slower. So that was, was one of the upshots from that work. And so I think we, we've tried to adapt from our own forecast error. But there was a study a long time ago about the, um, the dangers of forecasting and the behavioral defenses that people use to explain their forecast error. And they looked at two different groups of people. They looked at weathermen and uh, investors. And it turns out weathermen are incredibly well calibrated. They, they kind of know when they're, they're going to be wrong a lot. Weather is, as we've already established, very unpredictable um, and, and rather hit and miss. And yeah, a butterfly flaps its wings and then, yeah, suddenly we get a sunny day in the UK and, and we all think the summer's here. It, it's that kind of thing. So the weathermen have very low confidence in their own forecasting abilities. Investors, on the other hand, have incredibly high confidence in their forecasting ability. And um, the, the real scary thing is I find myself using one of the defenses that I know people cite a lot, which is it just hasn't happened yet. It's not that I'm wrong. It just hasn't occurred yet. And every time I hear myself saying that, I'm like, there's a voice in my head saying, you do know that you're falling into that trap, don't you? And it's like, yes, but it, it's just, it's true. And I wrestle with that. And I think 
it's one of the challenges of, of kind of studying the field of behavioral decision making and behavioral psychology. Amos uh, Tversky, who, who with Dan Kahneman was, was one of the founders of the field, once said that um, it didn't make them robust to behavioral errors. It just meant they, they at least knew what to call them when they made them. And that's a little bit how I feel at the moment. It's like I, I cannot build a, a great economic case for abandoning mean reversion. I still think of it as the most likely outcome. But there is no doubt I personally and we as a firm have been too bearish on U.S. equities. And we have to wear that. We have to own it. And, and trust me, in, in client meetings, we do. You know, an awful lot of clients are kind of looking at us like, you're start raving mad. You own no U.S. equities. Why would you want to own anything else? Look at how well they've done, which is a different behavioral error. And that's driving by the rearview mirror. But it is a conversation that we have with a, a regularity that, that means it is an inescapable fact of our lives for now, at least. So looking at the seven-year asset class forecast um, that incorporates sort of your standard approach to mean reversion, it would suggest that you believe that much of the world's market capitalization, whether equity or fixed income, is is overvalued. So let's just talk about what sort of structural factors you as a firm have explored as a potential explainer for that, whether you've looked at income inequality and the fact that you have a lot of investors chasing perhaps too few assets? What other things have you looked at? Yeah, so we, you're, you're right. We've looked at, at a, a wide range of drivers of what is going on. Income inequality was one of them. Um, low interest rate environment was very much another one of them. And I, I think a lot of what we have seen is really a kind of reach for yield in any way, shape or form. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's fixed income or equity. Anything that's kind of had a yield associated with it has become more valuable to investors. A lot of the, the policies that, that have been pursued around the world have, have also fundamentally driven a, a lot of this. Myself and uh, Philip Pilkington, who works with me, wrote an article on the deep causes of, of secular stagnation. And, and we were trying to argue that a lot of them were, in essence, policy choices. Globalization had been one of them, which uh, had allowed for, for kind of incomes and, and, and costs to be driven down in the developed world and not necessarily driven up, particularly in, in the developing world. The, the pursuit of inflation, kind of Uber Alice as a central bank um, target, had been part of it. The rise of, of shareholder value maximization, uh, a topic on which I have written extensively, uh, and not in a favorable light, I felt was, was part of it. And so all of these things are intermeshed and, and create the backdrop against which we kind of find ourselves struggling to find assets that look attractive. So when it comes to forecasting, this will maybe sound a bit glib, but are we getting worse at this? I think that maybe the conventional wisdom is that with the advent of technology and maybe a more learned approach to investing and allocating capital that, you know, we're in essence becoming our own worst enemy, arbing away some of the opportunities that would otherwise be available to us because we're pricing assets more efficiently. But if I were to look at your forecast, I might I might reach a different conclusion, right? Like we look at some of these major asset classes and your view is they're badly overvalued in the case of the U.S. and to a lesser degree, some other asset classes as well. So are we, are we getting worse at this? I think we have always been pretty bad at it and it's unlikely that we're going to get a lot better. I think it was um, either Samuelson or Schiller, one of the two of them, talked about micro, micro efficiency and macro inefficiency. And I, I think of that as quite a useful framework for thinking about it. And Jeremy puts it in a different context, but, but has a, an equally insightful way of putting it. And I, I guess Jeremy's makes sense, which is, let's say you are um, uh, a bank analyst or an insurance analyst, and, and your job is to, is to pick the best insurance company. Most insurance companies are, are, are pretty similar, by and large. And so the career risk involved in picking one over the other is, is pretty small. And therefore, it's reasonably efficient. The markets become more and more inefficient as you move away from kind of that micro level. So the more you move up to big asset classes, the career risk begins to dominate. So owning zero U.S. equities is a huge career risk. There is absolutely no doubt about it, particularly when they've done well. And so I think there's plenty of people who simply won't do that. They, they simply will say, no, I have to own some U.S. equities. I've met them. Some of them are invested with us. Um, and and I've, I've had many heated discussions about you know, the, the foolhardiness of owning such an expensive asset. And they remain petrified of, of not owning it. 
the kind of the fear of missing out has become the rationale of from their point of view. And I, and I get it. I understand it. Just from my perspective, it's not good investing practice. And so I think that that kind of inefficiency at the macro level is, is still very alive and well. You know, let's not forget the, the, the global financial crisis was uh, the seeds were sown in 2007 and the crisis exploded in late 2007, 2008. It was only seven years before that that, that we had the, the technology and media and telecommunication bubble, the PMT era, uh, the dot-coms. There are these kind of waves of, of enthusiasm and, and um, insanity that engulf the market on a surprisingly regular basis. So I think for all the faith that people have that the world is becoming more efficient, I just don't see it at the kind of macro asset price level. Can we talk about how individual investors or financial advisors should approach this? They have to plug in something in terms of their return expectation for the major asset classes to determine how much to save or whether they have enough to retire. What's a starting point for a project like that? So I think uh, actually my my colleague Martin Tarley has spent a great deal of time working on particularly the, the retirement problem and he has framed the question, and, and I quite like the way he's framed it, as what do you need and when do you need it? And I think those are pretty powerful ways of, of thinking about these kinds of issues. It's like, okay, so let's say I, I need a, a certain sum and, and I need it in 25 years. Okay, great. So once you've got your starting point, how much have you got today? You've given a, a situation of what do you want in the future. We can then imply from that a, a target rate of return. Once you have your target rate of return, Let's say it's, I don't know, five real. You, know, you need 5% above the rate of inflation to, to reach that target. Then you can begin to think about, okay, so I need to generate 5% per annum over the next 25 years. How am I going to do that? And I, I like that as a framing. And then I think once you've got your, your target rate of return in mind, then you can begin to think about, okay, so how on earth do I build a portfolio that, that can get me there? And can I get to that today? And I would suggest that it's a struggle to build a portfolio that is going to get you something like 5 or 6% real today. I think it would, you know, in essence, on our forecast at least, uh, you, you kind of have to have 100% of your money in emerging market value stocks, which even I do not think is necessarily a prudent portfolio. So I think it, it is a, it's a struggle to build a portfolio that's going to meet that objective today. So that then leads you to the question of, okay, so that objective is not deliverable today. So what do I do? Do I, do I reach for yield? Do I try and get as close to it as I can? Uh, I think that's the wrong answer, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly enough. I think being more cautious and saying, hey, look, I can't get that kind of return today because it's simply not available given the, the, the asset mix I have. So A, I need to save more. I need to be um, topping up, making greater contributions. And B, I want to be making sure I have plenty in reserve such that when I get a better opportunity set, I can take advantage of it. And really, Martin's work is, is really all about framing that problem. And he and Ben have written a couple of white papers on the subject, which I, I think are really important ways of thinking and framing these questions such that you can begin to have an approach to asset allocation and make active asset allocation central to the way you think about investing. For my closing question, I wanted to talk about something you referred to earlier, which is buybacks. Mm-hmm. I think in commentary of yours I've read, you've you've railed against companies borrowing in order to buy back stock. And that's my question for you. Isn't, isn't that, at a certain level, sensible capital allocation? Uh, you know, if firms are borrowing at a very low rate – to buy back their shares if they do perceive that to uh, have the lowest opportunity costs, let's say, isn't that a prudent way to allocate capital? Or is your bone of contention that, you know, really they're they're sort of mindlessly levering up and then just trying to shrink share count so that they've got a good story to tell to shareholders? Yeah, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to the, the second point of view. And I think you're not wrong in the first point of view, oddly that it is a perfectly rational thing for each individual company to do. You know, if you're faced with an incredibly low cost of debt, um, you're Apple and you can issue you know, 20-year bonds at 1%, great, go do that, buy back some equity. It, it makes good capital sense from their point of view. The problem I have is it's um, a fallacy of composition, which is what is sensible for each individual firm may not be sensible for the system as a whole. It's a bit like if you go to a baseball game and um, – 
Actually, it's probably a bad example. Everyone stands up at baseball games. But let's imagine everybody's sitting down at a baseball game. And, and you know, the, the person in front of you stands up because they need a better view. And then, of course, you have to stand up. And then before you know it, everybody is on their feet. So what was perfectly rational for that first person is a fallacy of composition because you all end up standing up and nobody is in any way better off than if they were all sitting down. Um, I think it's very similar with the buyback situation. So what you have is it's perfectly rational for each individual firm to perhaps do this, but in aggregate what it creates is rising leverage, greater vulnerability within the system. Now, leverage itself does not create a problem, but it does make, uh, to borrow Talib's term, the whole system more fragile. You know, any shock will reverberate that much more in a levered system. And I think this was, was one of the, the insights that, that Hyman Minsky had. He used to talk about the, the financial instability hypothesis and how stability begets instability. And I think that that is absolutely the case today. You know, the more stable the environment, the easier it is to take on leverage, but the greater the danger that that taking leverage creates problems further down the line when you do get some random shock. Let's say we get some sort of recession in the next couple of years. Well, what we have is an enormous outstanding amount of corporate debt at very low quality, right? Over half of all the corporate stock of debt outstanding today is in the lowest form of, of investment grade that you can get. Therefore, all of a sudden, the, the cash flows that these businesses thought were pretty secure may not be all that secure, and the wave of defaults could be much greater than we've seen historically. That should also be a concern, of course, to equity investors since corporate bonds are a, a senior claim to them. And so suddenly the cash flows of the equity investors thought they were going to get just disappear as well. And so you, you end up with a much more fragile, much more vulnerable system. And it's really that fallacy of composition that, that concerns me greatly. Well, James, I think we could talk to you for hours, but we'll leave it there. It's been our great pleasure to speak with you today in The Long View. Thanks so much for your time and insights. We really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much. It was really so enjoyable much. to speak with you. It was. It was illuminating. That was a real pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Take care. Take care, guys. Bye now. So long. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.